We now bring you the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast, featuring the late Dr. Harold B. Seitler, founding pastor of Tabernacle Baptist Church and Ministries in Greenville, South Carolina. And now, today's edition of the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast. Now let's open up our Bibles to Romans chapter number 8. Romans 8 for the message tonight from the Bible. Romans chapter number 8. And I do appreciate that good song and the message of it. And I'm sure there's souls in this building tonight that appreciate the, the words and the melody of that song the trio just gave to you. Praise the Lord for that blessed hope. I'm going to a place where God shall wipe away all tears and there'll be no more sorrow nor crying. For former things have passed away and behold, I make all things new. That'll be a good day for us. And I'm heading in that direction. Amen. Now tonight, I, I want to give you a message from Romans 8. Uh, when you begin to deal with the 8th chapter of Romans, it's like an artesian well. Uh, you never uh, drip it dry. You never drain it dry. You never exhaust its resources. You never exhaust its, its supply. It's, uh, it's pregnant with great truth that we need to get a hold of. Uh, from the very first verse to the very last verse, it's filled up with profound truth. You can start at the first verse or any verse in the, in, in the chapter and, and preach. An expository sermon from Romans chapter 8. One of the great chapters of all God's book is this book, this chapter. This is the chapter that contains the famous, uh, I know that all things work together for good to them that love God. Romans 8, 28. I told you about the young preacher that was dying of cancer over in Memphis, Tennessee. I, uh, this, is a, this is a true story that I'm about to relate. And a uh, young pastor, 41 years old, cancer taking his life slowly. They carried him to the Memphis Hospital and put him on the eighth floor. And when he discovered that he was on the eighth floor, he had his wife go out and get a little sign. And uh, not only on the eighth floor, but his room was 828. He had a little sign painted on top of that sign, it had the word Romans, and he attacked it uh, ahead of the uh, number. And he walked into the door and said, Romans 828. And he died in that room. But that's great grace for a man to have that kind of courage and that kind of faith to trust the Lord. And we have that if you're born again. This verse is mine as well as the young preacher in Memphis. It's my verse, and it's your verse. We can claim it and lay hold upon it and glean from it great grace for our own individual experiences. There are seven times in this chapter that I find the word if. Simple two-letter word if. Uh, beginning with verse number 8 and down through uh, the uh, verse number 31, I believe it is, verse number 25, rather. Seven occasions of the word uh, that you find the word if uh, in this chapter. Now, this is only one point of approach. You could approach the chapter from other angles and bring other thoughts, but uh, it's been my, my delight down through the years in reading the Bible to watch out for certain words that find itself in repetition. Uh, the word that in Paul's uh, epistles oftentimes give you a sermon outline within themselves. The word that, that's so in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through uh, 12. There are six times that the word that occurs in that particular chapter, and it makes, uh, it makes a sermon outline within itself. And throughout all the Bible, when you read your Bible, it do, it, it'll pay you to underscore or encircle uh, certain words th that re-repeat themselves oftentimes, and especially in one chapter, because they're significant. You know, this Bible we deal with is divinely inspired of God, and men did not write it or could not have written it had men been able to write it, we would have exhausted all of its content a long time ago. Because whatever man can write, you could uh, reach what, his depth, you see. You could, uh, you could ascend as high as he can ascend. 
But when God writes it, it's higher than you can reach and broader than you can circumscribe and deeper than you can tunnel beneath. Because God's wisdom is infinite, you'll never be able to exhaust all the wisdom of God contained in the Bible. When I was a young preacher many years ago, 34 uh, years ago, I thought to myself a time or two, I'll get to where I won't have anything to preach. What in the world will I do when I get to the place where I won't have anything else to preach? I thought I was rapidly preaching through the Bible and I'd soon run out of material. But you know, the longer I preach and the more I read the Bible, the bigger it gets. I, I, I find my task is not finished, but it gets bigger. And uh, I marvel at that. And that within itself is proof of Bible inspiration. It has to be inspired of God, or otherwise that statement could not be true. But it is true. And any preacher that's preached as long as I have knows that you never exhaust the depth of the Word of God. So I've selected these seven uh, occasions. The, the little two-letter word, if, appears in Romans chapter number 8. Now seven is a good number. It's always wise to look for uh, sevens in the Bible. Uh, seven is a complete number. Seven is a number of divinity. It's God's number. A perfect number, by the way, seven is a perfect number. Seven cannot be divided by anything. And one of the few uh, numbers that cannot be divided by anything, three is another, of course. But uh, there are other numbers, but most numbers can be divided. But number seven is a perfect number. It's a number for God in the Bible, number of divinity and completion and perfection in the Bible. So it might pay you to watch for that number often as you read. The number six uh, is the number of man. And many times when you're reading the Bible, you'll find that God says six great things about man and about man, uh, uh, things that are related to man. And it would not be proper to say seven things, so God says six things. Watch those numbers as you read uh, your Bible and as you try to expound the Scriptures. In verse number eight, I read, So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Now that's simply a statement and an introduction of the uh, section that I'm going to deal with tonight. Uh, they that are in the flesh, matters not who they are. Let them be potentate, let them be king, let them be wealthy, let them be an Edward Kennedy, or let them be a movie star of great renown, let them be a great politician like Nixon, or let them be whoever they may. If a man's in the flesh, he cannot please God. If a man's not born again, the wrath of God hangs suspended over his head. Mod is not who he may be. The judgment of God is against him. And sooner or later, that slender cord of mercy will break. And the wrath of God will fall upon every man that's in the flesh throughout all the world. But, verse 9, ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, there's the first one now. Put a circle about it. Put the number one in the margin of your Bible. If, so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. You are not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit. And being in the Spirit, then you're born of God's Spirit and saved by the grace of God. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, then he's none of his. Or any kind of religious works will not make you a son of Christ or a son of God. You might join any denomination around the world, but that will not necessarily make you a child of God. We're told in the latter clause, if any man have not the Spirit, if a man is not indwelt by the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit of God does not tabernacle within your body, then you're none of God's. You may talk religious, you may walk religious, you may think religious, and you may act religious, but if the Spirit of God is not on the inside, then you're not God's child. You've been grossly deceived, and you're really not deceiving anybody but yourself, because uh, those that have the indwelling Spirit can soon discern those who do not have the indwelling Spirit. So the first of these seven ifs is in verse number nine. I call the if of salvation. The if 
of salvation. And here it is. I, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if it so be, if so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. Now that great if is a condition. And once you've met that condition, if so be the Spirit of God dwell in you, then you have experienced and received salvation. And you can act like God's child and take your position as God's child and testify like God's child and believe like God's child. If so be the Spirit of God dwell within you, then you have eternal life, you have salvation. But there's no other condition that'll ever bring salvation to any man in the world except uh, he be born of God's Spirit and indwelt by the person of the Holy Spirit. Any amount of works otherwise will never produce eternal and everlasting life. Uh, we are not in the flesh, but we're in the Spirit, if so be. Now, if the Spirit of God does not dwell within me, then I'm yet in the flesh. I'm yet a sinner without God. I'm yet lost. If the Spirit of God does not dwell within me, I'm not God's child. Uh, the, the birthmark and the birthright of every born-again person is the indwelling of God's Spirit. And there isn't one saved person on all the earth but doesn't have that birthright. And God sees to it that you're endowed with it. The moment you become born again, the Spirit of God, that moment takes up his abode within your tabernacle. And the Spirit of God bears witness with your spirit that you pass from death into life. The witness and Spirit of God is the birthright of all of we that are saved. Back in the Old Testament, you've got a, a type of what I'm trying to say. Uh, in, the, uh, in the servant of Abraham searching for the bride for Isaac, Abraham's son, born miraculously. When he found Rebekah, and you remember how Rebekah said, Come, sir, and tarry in our house tonight. The servant of Abraham followed Rebekah across the hills to the house of Bethuel, and uh, a meal was prepared for them, and they sat down to enjoy that meal. But the servant said, Now I cannot eat this meal until I've told you who I am and why I'm here. And Bethuel slipped his chair back and said, Speak on, thy servant heareth. And the servant of Abraham told the amazing story of Abraham. And Abraham is always an amazing story. And told how that in his old age, at the age of 100, and his wife 90, that a great miracle transpired and a son was born miraculously. Of course, Isaac is a type of Christ in the Bible. And then he told how that the ancient Abraham uh, had sent him out and commissioned him to find a bride for this bridegroom born miraculously. Then he put the fleece out on his journey seeking for that bride and said, Lord, let it be that the girl that offers me water to drink at the watering place and then offers to draw water for my camels, let it be she shall be the bride. Then he'd hardly prayed that prayer until he arrived at the watering place and Rebecca walked across the hill and saw the stranger and said, Sir, let me give you water to drink. And his heart leaped. He said, This must be the bride. And while he drank, she said, Alas, sir, let me draw water for your camels. His heart leaped again. He said, This is the bride. Sure as you're born. This is the bride. This is the one that I'm searching for. And it was then that he followed her across the hill to the house of Bethuel. And as they told that story to, uh, to the family of Bethuel, uh, every eye is focused upon Rebecca. What will answer be? In verse number 58, chapter 24 of Genesis, Rebecca, after hearing the story, not having seen Abraham, not having seen Isaac, not having visited the land of Israel, but hearing only the story of Abraham 
as you and I heard only the story of Jesus and the story of the cross. In verse number 58, Rebecca said, deliberately, voluntarily, I will go. And brother, when she, said, I, when she said, I will go, as far as I'm concerned, that's when things was fixed up forever and forever between Isaac and Rebecca. Uh, she said, I'll go. Now that old servant said, bring the treasure chest off the back of my camel. And they brought a treasure chest in, opened it up, and that servant reached down in that treasure chest and took out a diamond golden bracelet. Now he had much other riches. Abraham was a wealthy man. And he brought this along as a demonstration of the wealth of Abraham. And the servant took one piece, just one bracelet, and said, Rebecca, give me your arm. And she reached out her arm, and that servant slipped that golden bracelet on her arm. And the moment she received that golden bracelet from another world, that moment she was marked as the bride of the bridegroom, you see. Though she had never seen the bridegroom, she had never been to Israel, she had never slept a night in the tents of Abraham. All she had was the story of the stranger, but she believed it. That servant gave her the token and the earnest of her inheritance. As if to say, you take this now, you're going to get a lot more a little later down the road. Amen, Amen brother. And years ago when I was a lad, the blessed Spirit of God related to me the story of Jesus and his love. And he said to me, wilt thou go? And I said the best of my ability, I will go. And the moment I said that, he gave me heaven's token, heaven's earnest, the blessed Holy Spirit on the inside. And the moment that Spirit moved into my body, I became the purchased possession of the eternal bridegroom and marked predestined to arrive in glory someday. Now that's the if of salvation. Now if so be the Spirit of God dwell in you, you're in the same journey I'm in. You're in the same way I tra travel in. You have the same earnest of your inheritance I have. You have the same assurance and the same guarantee that I've got. We're marching to Zion. We're like a mighty army of the redeemed. The world thinks we're beside ourselves. No, we're not beside ourselves. We know where we've been. We know why we now pilgrimage as we are. And more than that, we know where we're going. And we also know what we shall enjoy when we arrive at destination. If so be the Spirit of God dwell in you, then we know these things, you see. Now the Spirit of God doesn't dwell in everybody. Greenville's filled up tonight with a mass of people that know nothing about old-time religion. Why, you talk Jesus to them and, and they don't even want to bother with you. I saw Brother Bacon hand a truck driver a track yesterday. And Brother Bacon, as courteously and as politely as any man could, simply stepped up beside the truck driver and said, Sir, would you accept this track? And he looked at it and said, No, don't want it. You think the Spirit of God dwells in that man? Not in your life. Uh, he's going to hell without God, no doubt about it. He'd have been born again, man, and you said, thank you, brother. I appreciate you offering me that. Praise the Lord. I'm glad you're saved as I'm saved. But he wasn't born again and didn't want to be bothered. Didn't want to be bothered. Greenville's filled up with multitudes like that tonight. They know nothing of God. They have no part in old time salvation. But look at verse 9 again. But ye are not in the flesh. We are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so be the spirit of God dwell in you. And if a man be without the Spirit, he's none of God's. Not, can, cannot be without the indwelling Spirit. Now that's the if of salvation, verse 9. Now move down to verse number 10. 
And I see another if. I read, and if Christ be in you, here's a great supposition again. The word if, underscore it, put the number two in the margin by verse 10. If Christ be in you, and if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin. But the spirit is life because of righteousness. If Christ be in you, then the spirit is life. And the only way in the world that you can have life is by the Holy Spirit. If Christ be in you not, then the body is dead. You have, you're dead to hope. You're dead to anything better. You're dead to eternity. You're dead to God. You're dead to the avenue of prayer. You're dead to faith. If Christ be in you, if Christ be in you, the body is dead. The body, the natural body is dead, has always been because of sin. But if Christ be in you, the spirit that abides within you and tabernacles within you is life. Life because of righteousness. Now, every man that has the spirit of God abiding within him tonight has life and produces righteousness. Not death and sin, but the opposite. Life and righteousness. Life and holiness. It's the Holy Spirit on the inside of you that enables you to produce righteousness. You can never produce it otherwise. Suppose you began to grit your teeth and put your shoulder to the wheel, so to speak, and you were going to say to yourself, now I'm just going to live right, and I'm just going to do right, and I'm just going to produce righteousness through my own strength. Well, my friend, no use to grit your teeth, no use to put your shoulders to the wheel because you can't do that within your own strength. I don't care how good your resolutions may be. Matters not how sincere your determination may be. You can't do that. The only way that you can ever enjoy life and produce righteousness and holiness in your life, if so be the Spirit of God dwell within you. Now here's the energizing power. Here's the unctionizing power. Here's the ability that only God can produce to enable a man to be translated from death to life and from sin to righteousness. The Holy Spirit on the inside is that one agent of separation, that one agent of sanctification, and that one agent of holiness. You can't produce holiness and separation and righteousness through any other agent. That flesh of yours is, is a dead enemy to everything that's holy and godly in this world. When I would do good, evil is present with me. Now you can hold your hand up and say, preacher, that's me up and down. When I set out to do good, the old devil reminds me that evil is present. And brother, evil is present. And I find myself not doing what I desire to do and doing what I don't want to do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death that I have in a glint? Now, the only way in the world that I can be delivered from this death is the indwelling spirit. If so be, the spirit of Christ dwell within you. And so here is the if of separation from the things of the world. Now, I could, I could turn to 2 Corinthians 5, 17 for another proof text at that point. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things become new. Now, just as surely as you're watching me and listening to me preach, when you get converted, you become a different man. 
And the things that one time you did, you stop. And many things one time you cared nothing for, you become interested in and occupied with. You become a new creature in the Lord. The Spirit of God does that and produces that in your life. And if you're saved, you can't go back to the same hitching post. You can't do that. You can't drink out of the same bottle. And you can't sit at the same gambling table. And you don't dance on the same dancing floor. You don't live the same life. If the Spirit of God dwell within you, that Spirit of God in you produces righteousness and life. And you become separated, sanctified, and a holy person to God's glory. Now, I don't think I'm being too hard to say that. I mean, you think I'm too hard to say that? I, I, I know of so many pastors and preachers that water down right at that point. Now, I don't know. Some of you folk may have grown up. I'm an older man than most of you. And some of you folk have grown up in this uh, a now generation. And I was born back yonder before the now. <laughs> And I was called to preach back on it before the now. And I just can't get used to this thing. I just can't get used to it. And to tell you the truth, I don't plan to change my style of preaching one bit. Not a bit. Every once in a while, I want to check out on us. God will send in a half a dozen extra and take their place. But I don't plan to change my plan, my strategy, my message a bit. I believe saved people live right. I've always believed that. I've tried to do it my whole life. And I see no, no objections to that. Nobody can, uh, uh, could uh, find fault with my expecting you to live differently when you get converted, could you? Don't you think a man that's converted ought to pay his honest debts? Don't you think a man that's converted ought, ought to love his neighbor and not have envy and jealousy and hatred in his heart? Sure. Well, don't you think a man that's born again ought to quit his liquor habit? Sure he ought to. Don't you think a lady ought to dress like a lady? Sure they ought to. Don't you think a man ought to dress like a man? I, I pulled up behind a car the other day and I just knew that there was two girls kissing. And I said to my wife, look. And she was convinced also that there was two girls kissing in that car. And finally I got around the car and looked from the front side and one of those it's was a man. <laughs> but I couldn't tell the difference behind to save my life. They both had hair way down on the shoulders and I couldn't tell the difference. They were all hugged up and I thought two girls were having them a naked party. That's rather strange. I, I can understand how a boy and a girl might do that but I never have figured out how two girls want to do that. But anyway, I don't think boys ought to dress that way. I think they ought to cut their hair. Now that may be a little outdated, uh, up to date, or whatever you want to call it, but that's what I believe. Now if Christ dwell in you through the Holy Spirit, you're a different person. And so there's the second if, I call the second of the uh, if of separation. Then in verse number 11, I've got another. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you. Now how many of you folk in this building have the Spirit dwelling within you. Let's see your hand lifted up as a testimony. Amen. Wonderful. That's great. Now look at verse 11. But if the Spirit of Him, the Spirit of God, that raised up Jesus from the dead, and that's how the Lord came out of the grave, the Holy Spirit lifted Him out and brought Him out in a great resurrection. So says this verse. 
If the spirit of him that raised up Jesus Christ from the dead dwell in you, amen. It does, he does. He dwells within me, all right. Therefore, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by the spirit that dwelleth in you. Now that's all the guarantee I need of a resurrection. And that's exactly what uh, Paul is saying in that verse. I call this one the if of the resurrection. If the Spirit of God raised Jesus from the dead, now, if that's so, and it is, then, or therefore, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal body. One of these days you're going to plant me in the cemetery like we planted Brother Oscar and Mrs. Lansdowne. I don't know how long I'll stay in the cemetery, but one thing for sure, some golden daybreak is going to be different. The same blessed Holy Spirit that went into the garden tomb 2,000 years ago and tapped the Lord on the shoulder and said, get up. Will one day speak to me and I'm coming out of that grave and no vault can contain me, no mausoleum can contain me. And my mortal body is going to be transformed into immortality. My corruptible body is going to become incorruptible. My terrestrial body is going to become celestial. My natural body is going to become spiritual. My weak body is going to become powerful. And I'm going to walk out of that grave as sure as you're born. If the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead abide in you, that same spirit shall also quicken your mortal body some golden daybreak. Now that's going to be a camp meeting out at Woodlawn. When I get up out of that cemetery at Woodlawn, I'm going to holler so loud. You talk about a, a meeting. I've got a lot of friends out there, members out there, my child's out there, and my wife and I will be buried there, and some other folk that I love are buried there. And then I've got a lot of friends over at Graceland also, and a lot of friends down at Greenwood Memorial Park and other places around about the county. But when we get up, what a time that's going to be. And we're coming out. Wait a minute, preacher. It might not happen. Well, that's the whole point. It shall happen. That's what the verse says. That's what I'm trying to emphasize, you see. This is not a debate. This is a declaration. This is not debatable. It's enjoyable. I'm not asking your comment. I'm stirring your faith. And it's a reality. And one day the Lord's coming back. And I'm coming out of the grave, some golden daybreak. Amen. If the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, that same spirit shall also quicken your mortal body. And a great host of the redeemed will get up and walk out of the cemetery one day. And we'll, we'll strike arm in arm together and sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound. And we'll rise to meet the Lord in clouds. Won't that be a time? Reunion, homecoming. Oh, delightful thought, blessed thought, blessed hope, Paul calls it, and glorious appearing of our great God and of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. The if of resurrection. Now, if you have the Spirit of God in you, don't you fret one bit. You may die, but you won't stay in that grave, that's for sure. They may plant you in the city of the dead, but they can't plant you so deep. But watch, you're not coming out. You're going to be resurrected. And the same power and the same spirit that lifted my Lord out of the grave will also quicken my mortal body. Then I want you to know the fourth one, verse 13. 
I read, for if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if you through the spirit, not by gritting your teeth, not by grim determination, not by self-will, but if ye through the spirit do mortify the deeds of this body, ye shall live. I call this the if of sanctification. Now look at verse 13 again. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. Now that's a statement of fact. A man that follows the flesh and lives after the flesh and commits the deeds of the flesh is going to die in sin without God and without hope. There's no other way. Heaven would not be heaven if there were drunkards on the streets. Heaven would not be heaven if there were unbelievers in the fellowship. Can't be. I'm told in the Revelation that nothing shall enter into that city that worketh abomination or that defileth only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Nobody else going in. But you and I that are saved are going in by the grace of God. Now if you live after the flesh, ye shall die. If you live after the flesh, ye shall die. You satisfy your flesh, you're dead while you live. And you're marking time until you meet God and die eternally. If you satisfy the flesh, you're without God and lost. But if ye through the Spirit, through the power of the Spirit, through the inspiration of the Spirit, through the wisdom of the Spirit, through the power of the Spirit, do mortify your deed, your members and the deeds of this body, ye shall live. This is the if of sanctification. And this is the great battle that all of us experience in our, in our sojourn. I have to wrestle with myself every day that I live. And I'm my own worst enemy. You don't give me any problems, but I have a lot of problems with myself. Living like I ought to live and doing like I ought to do and being obedient like I ought to be. Sometimes I have a battle along those lines. But the Spirit of God on the inside enables me to mortify, kill out, my members that are upon the earth. My hand says, do this. My soul says, no, you don't. My eye says, look here. And my soul says, no, you turn your head away. My feet says, let's go this direction. But God says, no, you, you resist and flee fornication and avoid youthful lust and go in the opposite direction. Now, I don't do that through my own strength. I'm not standing before you to tell you that I've apprehended. I'm still battling. I'm still at war. I'm still wrestling with my flesh. And I have not yet apprehended that for which I was apprehended when God saved me by his grace. But I'm reaching forward. I'm pressing onward to the mark. And day by day, I'm wrestling and fighting and mortifying my members by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. I'm determined by his grace and through the power of the indwelling spirit not to allow sin to reign in my body. I'm going to permit righteousness and godliness and holiness to reign in my life. I call this the if of sanctification, verse number 13. And how needful that is in your life and mine that we mortify our members that are upon the earth. Sometimes it might be that tongue. Oh, what a little member. But set on fire of hell. You'd be surprised when I see some people together, I wonder what's up. I mean, some people have a tongue tied in the middle, loose on both ends. They ought to pay a double telephone bill. They use them double time. I mean, just talk, talk all the time. It might be hard to let that little member die. 
But brother, they ought to die. That tongue ought to die. You ought just to set a policy not to criticize and not talk about anybody, not to slander anybody. Now, sometimes that's hard to do. It's not easy to criticize your brother. Jesus said, uh, you, you pull the beam out of your brother's eye, but you don't know the moat that you've got in your own eye. And we Baptists are bad about that. We know exactly how to get the beam out of our brother's eye, but while we're working at that, we don't behold the moat in our own eyes. God have mercy. Our tongues need to be mortified. Our eyes need to be mortified. Our members need to be crucified. Then you'll never be a sanctified man or woman until you mortify your members that are upon the earth. Then number five, verse 17. And if, there's your two letters again, there's your word again. And if children, and I am, praise the Lord, I'm a child of the king. I don't deserve it. I don't work for it. Don't merit it. But by the grace of God, I'm a child of the king. Amen. I'm, I know where I've been, know where I'm going. God's my father. Jesus, my elder brother. The Holy Ghost is my comforter. The devil's no relation. I'm saved by the grace of God. If children, if children, and I am, then heirs. Amen. That, that's the ultimate. That's the zenith. That's the paramount. If children, then I'm heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Now I call this the if of adoption. Now I haven't yet been adopted. That adoption is the final work of redeeming grace. And when you and I get to heaven as children, it's then that we'll become heirs and joint heirs. It's then that we're adopted into God's family. I'm up for adoption now, and I've been saved by the grace of God. I'm a candidate for adoption, but I haven't come into the heirship yet. But I'm an heir of God and a joint heir with the Lord Jesus. I've been adopted as God's child, and since I'm adopted, then I come in heirship of all the glories of my father and all the wealth of my father. Praise the Lord for that. The if of adoption. And then I have two others. Verse number 25, I call the if of expectation, but if... We hope for that which we see not. Then do we with patience wait for it. If we hope for that which we see not. Uh, implies uh, uh, the second coming. Implies the resurrection. Implies the second coming of our Lord. It implies heaven. It implies the airship that I mentioned a moment ago. If we hope for that which we see not. Then we have patience. We with patience wait for it. But if we hope. And in, in the preceding verse, we're told that we're saved by hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why does he yet hope for it? In order that hope be hope, it has to be based upon faith. If it's not founded upon faith, it's not hope at all. If we can see it, we don't hope for it. If we've inherited it, we don't hope for it. But if we by faith, through an eye of faith, see and believe, then with patience we wait for that which we hope for someday. I think Abraham's an illustration. He looked for a city that hath foundations, whose maker and builder is God. He never saw that city in his earthly sojourn, but someday Abraham shall inherit and see the city that he hoped for when he left the earth of Chaldees and followed God by faith. He never saw it, but he's going to see it. I've never seen it. But I one day shall, praise the Lord, for that blessed hope and glorious appearing. The hope of expectation, the if of expectation. 
And then I want you to note finally in verse 31, the if of consummation. In that verse, what shall we then say to these things? Now, you know what Paul has already said. He's talking about in these latter verses about uh, being saved eternally. And verse number 28, we know that all things work together for good. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? The if of consummation. If God be for me, how can I but help to achieve and to realize my goal and to anticipate my destiny and enjoy my inheritance? You say, well, Brother Harold, you might fumble the ball. Well, the point is, though, see, I don't have the ball. It's not my game. It isn't my salvation. You might fall from grace. Well, now, again, I have no control over that. It's not my grace. I'm saved by his grace. Well, you have to grit your teeth and keep yourself. Lest you fall. No, my friend. I've committed myself into the hand of the Savior. And he keeps me day by day. I hold his hand. He keeps me day by day. If God be for us, who can be against us? The if of consummation. Now I want to close by saying to you and reminding you that everything God has ever promised his elect, we shall inherit it. We shall enjoy it. You name it. You name it. Let it be life. Let it be rewards. Let it be the city of God. Let it be a mansion in the sky. Let it be reunion with our loved ones. Let it be a glorified body. Anything God's ever promised, me and you, you name it, will one day become realized. God's integrity is behind all of it. The consummation of all God started is dependent upon the integrity of God. And so he has the if of consummation. It's bound to happen. We shall achieve. We shall inherit. We shall gain the prize. Press on. Press on, weary pilgrim. It won't be very long. We're going to gain the prize. If God be for us, who can be against us? Amen. Isn't that great? The devils can't be against you. The devil himself can't be against you. Principalities, in fact, Paul commits to enumerate in the verses to follow along a list of things that conceivably might be against some of us. It might hinder us in our pilgrimage. But he concludes that we're more than conquerors through him that loved us and gave his life. And he says also that I'm persuaded that nothing shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In other words, consummation is a fact. One day I shall see him, and seeing him I shall be like him, for I shall see him as he is. Seven ifs in Romans 8 that teach us the great things of God. May we bow our heads in prayer. Our Father, help, I pray that these seven things that I've brought tonight might be of some inspiration and help to somebody within this building. Thou dost know the need of every individual. There may be one tonight defeated or discouraged. The devil might have brought a great attack against some of these in their own minds and their own souls. They might have been tempted to think for a moment that God had clean forgotten them. But I pray that you'll help us always to remember that he said, I will not forget thee, though a mother may forget her circling child. I will not forget thee. I will not leave thee. 
I have loved thee with an everlasting love. And may that assurance bring great consolation to our inward man to know that someday we shall gain the victory by the good grace of God. We thank you for listening to the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast. If this sermon was a blessing to you, please share and invite others to listen and join us next time on the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast.